Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. The video that you're about to watch should never have been made, but it needs to be. And I don't want to be the one to make it. It grieves my heart to make this video. But if I take seriously the love that I have for the school, the seminary I graduated from, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, if I take seriously the love I have for the Southern Baptist Convention, for the Evangelical Church, and for my country, then some of the things that are happening on our seminary campuses, especially the campus I graduated from, need to be exposed. It grieves my heart to sit here in the same corner, I even wore the same shirt today, exactly one year after I first revealed my experience at Southeastern and report to you that the problems that I warned about a year ago are still present on Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary's campus, and perhaps in some ways, They've intensified. Certainly the, the debate has. For a year I've been warning about social justice in evangelical institutions, and by God's grace, many have realized what's happening. I've been warning about Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for a year. Uh, many professors and students have privately, especially, shown support for what I've been doing. But I've been discouraged by the response uh, from administrators, uh, both to myself and to concerned students who have approached this and told me about it. I've documented, I've exposed, I've responded to uh, the critical race theory, the liberation theology, the intersectionality of feminism, the perspectivalism that is emanating from Southeastern. And if you don't know what perspectivalism is, I'm going to have an expert, a professor from the Southern Baptist Convention on to talk about that. So keep your eyes peeled for an episode coming in the next few weeks. But the critics have said that I'm being dishonest, and others who have shared concerns like me. In fact, the president of Southeastern told me that on the phone a year ago, that I'm being dishonest. And that there's no evidence that Southeastern or the SBC is going left, even in the face of direct evidence. I've been asked uh, if I've approached the people that I have exposed. And I didn't know this at the time, but now I do. This is how SBC politics works. If there is a public error, a video that goes out online, a chapel message, something that is publicly proclaimed and it's wrong, you're not supposed to publicly uh, expose it, object to it. You're supposed to privately go to that person. The assumption behind this is actually fallacious. It's an intentionalist fallacy. It's um, the idea that in order to get a perspective to accurately interpret another perspective, um, you have to go to the same source and they have to give you another perspective. The problem with that is that it's an infinite regress. For example, let's say someone made an error, said something that was heretical, and I went to them privately. I said, you've publicly said something that's wrong that will lead people down the wrong path, and they've given me their explanation for it. And let's say I take that explanation that was given to me privately and I don't agree with it. Um, well, someone could object. Well, have you really gone to that person and have you considered the explanation that they gave you? So you go and get another explanation and it, and it keeps going. Have you considered that explanation? Um, what someone says in public uh, should be, um, you, you should be able to interpret that, to respond to it. This is what Jesus did. This is what the Apostle Paul did. Uh, we have sure footing biblically to do this. 
But that's been one of the major objections that I've received. And in some cases, I have gone to people uh, that I've disagreed with privately. In other cases, I haven't. Um, I don't have time to track down every single person, nor do I have a standing with all of them. But I've tried my best to go through the proper channels. And I know on Southeastern Baptist Theological's campus, many others, especially students, have done the same. They have gone through the proper expected channels. The other objection that I've heard is that we have a statement of faith, that we believe the Bible is truth, uh, we love the re conservative resurgence. And, and so my, my response to this is, yeah, so, so you believe the Bible is inerrant. You know, the demons believe that too. And that's good, you should believe that. But do you think it's sufficient? Or do you think we need sociology or some other field to inform us for training ministers? The Bible is truth, but what is truth if you're a prisoner to the perspective of your social group? The postmodern controversy that we're going through is more dangerous at a fundamental level than the modernist controversy that the SBC escaped in the resurgence. You can affirm the truth of the Bible all day long, but if you destroy truth, then it doesn't matter how long or how hard you try to maintain the truth of Scripture. This is an evasion, and it is a, this current movement is Gnostic. It's claiming that there, you must have a secret knowledge from an oppressed perspective to interpret the Bible. That's partially what Resolution 9 was about. I've been told that some of the montages that have gone out there, um, I've been told that some of the articles that uh, I've written, I, I, I've been told that some of the material that I've chosen to talk about has been taken out of context. And I have always responded with, show me where. Show me where it's been taken out of context. Uh, I, I am open to correction. If, if there's something that is off, if, if I've misrepresented someone, they meant the opposite of, of what I uh, presented them as saying, then I, I want to know that. I want to be careful with the truth. At the same time, how do you do scholarship if you can't quote someone? You, you know, a good example would be the crew montage that went out uh, a couple of months ago. Crew, Campus Crusade formally, has gone left. And I put out a montage of just some of the speakers that spoke at the Crew 19 conference over the summer. And that was one of the objections that I got was, <laughs> you're, you're uh, taking things out of context. I don't know how to play you a 20-hour video. It would be just all of the quotes uh, in context. It'd be, no one would watch it. So to sound the alarm, I have to summarize. And we do this all the time. We always summarize. That's how we live our lives. The, the academic process would not be able to proceed if you're not allowed to quote someone and try to summarize their perspective. The question is, do you do it accurately? Do you fairly represent them? Do you use the hermeneutical tools, the grammatical historical ones we're supposed to be learning to do that? Are you taking into account uh, the original audience? Are you, are you looking at the author's other works, if possible? Are you uh, looking at the context and the authorial intent? I've tried to do that to the best of my ability. And I have not had anyone, when I bring that response up, uh, give me any serious pushback. They're not able to tell me where I took something out of context or how I misrepresented. They just say that I did. And that amounts to an ad hominem attack.
on my character. But I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Um, I knew <laughs> when I first sounded the alarm on what's happening that I and others like me uh, would be blacklisted from whatever denomination we're part of, uh, in this case, the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's okay. Um, not only do I not want to be the captain on a sinking ship, but it's more important to please God than to please men. And I, I do think that the Lord has put me and others like me in this position uh, to warn those who are funding this, if you're in the Southern Baptist Convention, and those uh, who are in churches that are confused now by their new seminary grads who are their pastors. Um, I want to explain to them what they're seeing and, and help them understand and navigate this. For those who are like me and have objected, who have privately especially gone and talked to um, seminary heads, other entities in the SBC, or maybe you're in another denomination, when, when these concerns come up, and you've done it out of love, you've done it because you want to warn the church, you're concerned about the direction of the church, um, I pray that the eyes of those whom you've gone to will be opened. And that's why I put this together. Language can also encourage sexism. The understanding of he as a generic has very much diminished in our society. So we want to be careful to guard against using that because we don't want to be the people who are offensive. I'm old enough to remember when anything that even sounded like social justice was an antithesis to the gospel. Mm -hmm. Some of that is because of a capitalistic framing of the gospel that we're in in America. And it's this idea culturally of an individualist lens versus a collectivist lens. Okay. The gospel speaks to the system. Jesus was crucified because he disrupted the system. Mm -hmm. So we, even when you interpret the gospel, period, you must think in terms of a system. It's always struck me uh, as a great example of systemic bias, really academic systemic bias, when we, uh, when we look at somebody like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and so many people want to just kind of wholesale discredit him, yes. we might embrace somebody like a Jonathan Edwards yes. or, uh, or other Puritan leaders yes. um, who have uh, questionable beliefs yes. and questionable yes. life practices, oh, right? Yes. And, uh, yeah, I think immigrants are valuable because uh, the Old Testament clearly states that God loves the immigrant and God's people are to treat um, the immigrant with, with equity, with, with love. Good morning, my name is Walter Strickland, uh, first vice president of Southern Baptist Convention, professor of theology and associate vice president for King University at Southeastern Seminary. I'm here in Washington, D.C. today to be the voice on uh, for those who are voiceless. And today we're speaking on behalf of dreamers, and we're hoping to do uh, what the Bible calls us to do, which is to uphold the rule of law, but at the same time have a compassionate uh, view of humanity and human flourishing. And so we're going to call upon our, our legislators today to make a legal pathway for dreamers to become citizens. Many could characterize the, the, the evangelical analysis of politics. We can be more specific even in the Southern Baptist context of always being hardcore when it comes to issues of being pro-life 
and being pro-traditional marriage. Uh, so, and anything that deviates from these things is often labeled liberal. So once again, liberal is a trigger word and it, it, it makes people uncomfortable and it feels, I think for some, it'll evoke emotions of losing power, uh, losing uh, orthodoxy, it can go to the extent of dis di dismissing the Democratic Party or any ideology that's labeled liberal as anti-Christian. Uh, conservatism is another trigger word, which in many can wholesale perceive it as the godly way. The white culture is the dominant culture, black culture is the subdominant culture. Uh, an African American cannot thrive in a white evangelical space. It's just a matter of time before I hit the brick wall. You know, all my assimilation and everything, I'm st somebody's still going to call me the N-word somewhere along the line. All yeah. Right? You cannot be totally cut off from your own culture and just be uh, like an Oreo. Moses was raised in the big house. He wasn't raised in the hood, right? <laughs> but you can tell that Moses kind of knew who he was because at the age of 40, he comes back to hang out, you know, with the people in the hood, you know. And, and it's, ob it's obvious they had a sense of justice, you know. Although we try to start the revolution a little early, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, by killing that Egyptian, people in the dominant group, whatever, however you want to define that, the the systems that they work in function for them better than they do for the subdominant group. Mm -hmm. They had a distribution system in 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 the early church, taking care of widows, mm -hmm. hmm. but the system broke down when it came to the subdominant group, the Greek widows. Yeah. And now the, the apostles could have said, well, you should just be glad enough to be in the, in the, in the body. You, why do you complain? This is a good system. Instead, they recognized the problem. They knew they did not have the, 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 the know-how to root out the problem because they were part of the dominant group. Mm -hmm. So they appointed seven Greek deacons. There were, no, there were no Hebraic Jews in that group. They were Greeks. And they were the ones who were, who were tasked with getting the bugs out of the system and running the distribution system for the Jews and the Greek widows. There's more than one way of doing theology. He actually is the one who uh, allowed me to see that these actually, you know, there's questions that arise from your experience that then you bring to the biblical text. You then grapple with the text to see how it answers those questions you brought to it. And then you take those answers out and you try to embody them. Dr. Cohn, he opened my eyes to the fact that Christ is trying to restore brokenness, you know, and he really had a, a focus on that brokenness as manifesting as oppression, racially speaking. Dr. Cohn really allowed me to see the a new vista, a new space, a new avenue to uh, allow the gospel to be made manifest. I think the evangelical will do well to hear the voice of Dr. Cohn in drawing us towards the, the, the reality that the gospel, the resurrection of Christ, has implications for the here and now, but yet also making sure that we don't lose the uh, eternal in, in, uh, realities of the gospel. Sociology without theology is hopeless, but theology without sociology is blind. The other thing I think is, is helpful is to establish a plurality of diverse leadership. Some of my female students have pushed me about the number of women I have in the bibliographies. I remember I taught a course on um, Romans, and yeah, my like, top 10 Romans commentaries were all uh, you know, largely male. 
And mm. so I thought about what some of the voices I could bring out. And I did know of some great works on Romans, like Fleming Rutledge. He's got a great series of sermons on Romans. And so I have been a little bit more conscious um, out of that deliberate prodding by students to think, well, how can I be uh, more inclusive, be more representative in women? It's just so important to think, you know, is there another way of reading scripture? What, does it like, what is it like to read the book of James through the eyes of the majority world? What's mm -hmm. it like to read something like Galatians uh, in the context of Sri Lanka, in a country that is ethnically um, divided mm -hmm. between, between different groups? I mean, a lot of Christians, I think, suffer from hermeneutical solipsism. Mm -hmm. They assume that their interpretation is the only one that exists or the only valid one. Yeah. But when you realize that there, there are insights you can get from different cultures and, and even just from people in general, that their own life experience will bring mm -hmm. something to the table. We do need to be prepared to accept that you know our way, you know the Anglican way, the Presbyterian way, the male way, the the white male way, um, the Northern Hemisphere way, or whatever mm -hmm. the, the way is you've been ingrained is not the only way, and you can learn a lot and at least appreciate you know the people who are other, who are different to you, and that's in the global church of christ that is what we should be doing there's these two broad camps sort of developing one or more people are calling them hard, harder line commentarians others are more soft commentarians yet both um adhering to the the baptist faith of message 2000 and even the danvers statement on biblical manhood and womanhood both of those positions fit within the, those documents. I think that one thing that we can do going forward is make sure that we're empowering um, people uh, from people that do not look like us in ways that are a little bit more intentional. So what that looked like is uh, from, whether it be from the executive committee level, with our trustees, our uh, different boards that um, trustees in various entities are Southern Baptist entities uh, inviting uh, people of color, uh, people, uh, you know, women uh, into those positions so that even at all at all levels, um, are those voices are heard. T'Challa's on top of a car fighting and so is, so is Okoye. Um, and they're just doing the same thing and they're not like, neither one has to demean the other mm -hmm. in order to show that they're capable and strong. Yeah. Um, I don't. I, that just resonates with me. I know that in America, the history, I mean, historically in the, in the world since Adam and Eve, men and women relationships have been broken from the jump. Mm. And in America, it's been seen in a in a our patriarchal setup, um, and with the women's rights movement, all that happened happened so we can have a voice. It's just really good to see what it could look like mm. um, if a man and a woman, both equally powerful, equally skilled really respect that in each other. If you live in the middle of a place that is just overwhelmingly white, there's hardly any people of color where you live at all in your town. This sounds like a harsh thing to say, but you probably should not adopt mm. a non-white kid. And uh, this goes back to that, that form that everyone's going to have to fill out at some point if you want to adopt. And we, we've talked with other couples about this, given our experience. And, you know, if you're going to move to the middle of some place where it's all white folks and you're filling out this adoption, uh, checklist and it says you know what races are you open to i think white folks struggle with guilt they feel guilty you know if they say well i'm only going to check the box that says i'm open to adopting a white child but it would be much better for your kids if you are gonna only be able to because of where you live because of who your friends are and because of what you can and can't change in your life if you're going to raise kids like white kids that's not bad that's not wrong that's not evil at all, but you should adopt white kids.
lynching still hovers over our culture. Whites have always felt threatened by blacks. Lynching is a crime done by Christians against other Christians. There is an uncanny exact correlation between the rate of capital punishment in North Carolina and the rate of lynching in North Carolina. Lynching, in a sense, as we've seen it on images, does not occur. Uh, they're looking on social media. Uh, they're watching the news. Uh, and they're seeing the lynchings of black bodies such as Tamir Rice, such as Laquan McDonald, right, such as uh, countless Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, right, and the list goes on and on. We, we've got a president who cannot rule this country without vilifying brown people at the border. I didn't lynch. My people didn't lynch. Why can't we begin our understanding of the context of racism with the prayer of confession, not the accusation of others who challenge us? One of the authors of the seminal book on race relations divided by faith, uh, Michael Emerson, says that the past election cycle, uh, so he says in the article that the election itself was the single most harmful event to the whole movement of reconciliation in at least the past 30 years. The Christian of all people should have spiritual lenses that have earthly good so that they can see this is why we have this. Again, we're not the most um, incarcerated country by accident. You can always preach the gospel and talk about the incarnation, which is the person in one place able to condescend and enter another space. The person with privilege, the person who has the most often can be like Christ in laying that down and not just laying it down for a moment, but laying it down to enter in. So I think that what hinders is the the lack of entering into one other space. You've got a group of people who has enjoyed, whether knowingly or unknowingly, privileges and power in the modern church setting that anything that tends to threaten that power is seen as outside the bounds of even orthodoxy. The reason majority culture individuals want to be colorblind is because um, many majority culture individuals see their experience as prescriptive. Mm -hmm. Like I was raised this way, which is the right way, so you should raise your kids that way too. I think a lot of white men, especially seminarians, have to die to the idea of being the pastor of a multi-ethnic church. Mm. Um, and for, I once told a white friend of mine that that's the one thing in the, in the United States of America that it probably was a good idea for him not to do. Uh, he began to weep and cry because he had never been told that there was something that he can't do in America. I recently read of a seminary, one that trains preachers that refuses to discuss the tenets of black liberation theology. What about your shade of color theology? What made James Cone's theology necessary in the first place? How is it now that there seems to be a strange convergence between nationalism and Christianity in America? All forms of preaching are in some way affected by the color of the theology we practice. 
I practice theology from the black experience. But friends, you and I, I want to suggest, do not have the best of orthodoxy until all of God's people speak. Black theology is not heresy. It might actually be a gift to the academy. Let me tell you some biblical stories. And let me just give it to you through uh, an immigration lens. Have you read Daniel? Latinamente. This resonates. Because the life of an immigrant is the constant negotiation of loss. Loss of your language. Loss of your food. Loss of your friends. Loss of your family. Loss of your dignity. The loss of the nonverbal language. The warmth, the abrazos, the kisses on the cheek. Now you get sued for that in this country. That is the life of living Latinamente. And that is what redirects biblical studies. What you begin to realize is that we need those other voices. Look at your landscapers. Give me their names. Oh, those Mexicans, they sure work hard. Nameless workers who work their lives to the bone. If your father gets taken away and deported, uh, who's going to take care of the children? Those are the conversations you have in a Latino church. A sermon on, be sure you drive the speed limit, because you don't want to be stopped. I think many Christians who are well-intended in their desire to uphold the authority of the text uh, slip into a desire of protecting the text from misinterpretation, which they are trying to then read the Bible so objectively that they, because they cannot escape their own cultural trappings, assume their own cultural realities into the, in this reality of inerrancy, and then we come up with this very simplistic reading of the text. Oftentimes the pattern is for authors to come to publishers, but I think the publisher needs to have a missiological disposition to go in and finding these voices that are drastically underrepresented ideologically. I was pastoring in Baltimore and uh, during the, the, uh, the riots and, and all of that that was going on, Freddie Gray and, and so on, uh, I found myself as a pastor kind of grasping, you know, what, what do I say as a pastor? What do I do as a pastor? Does God have anything to say about, about this? I found uh, one like Amos and several others. Uh, once, you, once you put on the lenses, you see, every, you, you see it all over the place. Uh, but I started to recognize that the Bible does talk about this. The Bible, you know, God absolutely has something to say uh, about structural injustices. Isn't there only one biblical theology? And I said, well, who gets to decide what that is? The Americans? The contextual part is not only what you do after you do the other. It actually informs how you do what you do. Because race and ethnicity and all the things that go with it are very volatile issues, when you make a mistake in this field, 
that we are sensitized, as Dr. Carroll said, to certain dynamics in the text, because uh, there's, there's so much there that God is trying to communicate to us. The information that I'm going to bring to my understanding of the words on the page are informed by the way that those words are used in my own you know, background. If you look at uh, the story of the Exodus and the role that it plays in how it's situated in the African-American Christian tradition, it becomes sort of like a hermeneutical lens to understand the reality of God interacting with his people. We have set a very high auspicious goal that 10 years from now, 30% of all students on this campus will be ethnic minorities so that indeed we as a seminary look like the church in heaven and we then are able to serve the churches and helping them build churches that look like the church in heaven. We stand steadfastly against any type of evil or wickedness that exalts any type of racial superiority, white supremacy, neo-Nazis, bigots, and racists. We will mark that for what it is, sin, evil, and wickedness. And I recognize that for a denomination that still bears the stain of racism, we have work to be done. Please pray for Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, for the Southern Baptist Convention, for the church, for the muzzled who aren't allowed to say anything against this movement. There may even be more good professors there than, than bad professors. And even some of the professors that are teaching are doing so out of ignorance. I like some of these men. I, I can't overemphasize that enough. I am not trying to personally attack anyone. Um, I want to show love for all the people uh, that even that you just watched in this montage. Some of them, I think, have evil motives. They are plants in the church to destroy. Others, I think, are going along because they're ignorant, they haven't thought it through, and they think that this is right. And they may, they may love God, um, but the time is, the time is over <laughs> for, um, for, for making decisions. You, you have to choose at this point which side of the fence you're going to line up on. So much has happened in the last year to make it abundantly clear to men in the Southern Baptist Convention that there are two sides that have formed. And you've got to get on one side or the other. You can't straddle the fence any longer. You're not going to be allowed to do it. Am I going to support this ethnic, this uh, gender-driven Gnosticism? Or am I going to side against the social justice movement for what it is? and side with biblical sufficiency. Pray for the men who are weary. Uh, they need your support, they need your strength um, that you can provide them, your encouragement, uh, and they need uh, to resist the attacks that are leveled against them on a spiritual level, on a personal level as well. So pray for them. Uh, pray for the deceived professors that have good intentions. Um, Everything I just showed you in that montage was directly from Southeastern's website, or in the case of, I think, two clips in the beginning, they were from uh, Twitter videos uh, from two, um, two professors. This is what's going out there. It's not the only thing that's going out there, but it is going out there. And it, you know, it's, it's hard for me to even think through what needs to be presented and what doesn't. There's so much more I could have shown you. But it was a long montage. It was 20 minutes as it is. Um, my concern right now is that uh, we have made a difference, those who are exposing this. But the difference we've made, I think, is that this stuff is going underground. Uh, for instance, uh, within the last year, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary scrubbed uh, the Kern Family Foundation 
as being a sponsor, they, they don't advertise it anymore, from their Intersect website. Kern funds Intersect. But because Kern is giving money to forward some of these social justice uh, teachings, and because that's been exposed, I'm assuming at least, it was right around the time it was being exposed, Southeastern uh, got rid of the, they're not advertising that Kern is funding their Intersect. Um, around the time that I exposed the Kingdom Diversity Initiative and some of the material that was coming out from Kingdom Diversity, Southeastern scrubbed the Kingdom Diversity website. And I remember at the time, um, I was told that the reason was they were just updating their website and that all the videos that were controversial would come back. Well, they haven't. Not all those videos have. Just a few articles and videos remain. I'd say about 80-90% of the videos that were there, gone. And that my concern is that some of this is going underground, but there's been no apology, no retraction, uh, no stand against the social justice movement at Southeastern. Um, those who expose it are accused of the things I mentioned before the montage, but it's still going on. And this is what students are telling me. It's still going on in various classes, in events that aren't filmed, those kinds of things. It's changed the way that we approach the Bible, our hermeneutical lens. Perspectivalism is rampant now. And that is a direct attack on the truth of Scripture. So, I didn't want to do this video. I really didn't. It grieves me. I was hoping that a year ago when I put out um, my warning that, that it went viral. I didn't expect that either, but I hoped someone would pick it up. I, I was hoping Southeastern would hear it, see it, and say, you know what, he's got a point. And that others now who have stepped forward, I think of the Founders video that just came out recently, um, that their effort would, would not be in vain. And it's not in vain, but that it would produce fruit immediately. And I don't see evidence of that. The social justice movement is more serious now than it ever has been on Southeastern's campus and in the Southern Baptist Convention because it's, it's been given so much time to run its course that it's now streamed down to the pulpits of this country. It's splitting up churches. You saw that with the FBC Naples um, issue and other churches that I, I know about that are smaller, that have been destroyed because of this movement. Uh, it, it, it really is having an impact in theology. So you may not hear about uh, anti-Trump rhetoric. I don't know. You may not hear. It's something like the lynching panel that was in the montage that was just played. That may not happen anytime soon uh, because Southeastern and, and other SBC entities are, are under fire for those kinds of things. And it, it's so obvious, obviously progressive and obviously left wing when you just put that out there. But pay attention to the way that professors are approaching the text of scripture and you'll find that the most nefarious elements of the social justice movement are alive and well in our seminaries. Let's pray that this is used by God to call attention to it and that people wake up and realize the problem that it is. In the next few weeks, I'll be putting out some more content about this, um, especially uh, the video that I'm gonna be coming out with about perspectivalism. You're not gonna wanna miss you're going to want to understand what's actually happening and how it's affecting your church and the practice of doing theology in general. So uh, please, um, if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, subscribe, or if you do audio podcasts, um, get on iTunes. I'm, I haven't spent a dime of, of my own money promoting any of this. 
I, I never was trying to um, become a, a big name or any of that. I'd be content not to be. But I want the church to be the church. And I, I think there's some good content coming from some godly men that have agreed to do interviews with me. And I want you to hear what they have to say. So it will benefit you, and I trust uh, it will help you uh, if you're in ministry uh, to, to do it well and to glorify God. So I hope this helps. God bless. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.